Welcome to the second part in a four-part mini-series with a blog to watch and Scottish watches. On the line we have Ariel Adams from a blog to watch. How are you doing today, Ariel? I'm very good. I'm glad to be here back for the second part of this little mini-series. Yep, and unfortunately we've also got Rick from Scottish Watches yes. here with us. Yes, I'm here. I'm here and there is only one question that needs asked. And that is, Ariel, how did you first find out about Scottish people? <laughs> okay, Straight so to the jugular. I would, I'm going to preface this by saying that I, you know, you guys told me that um, Scottish people had a reputation for being nice, and I said, tell me more about Scottish people and you know, what you have a reputation for, and then I proceeded to ask you, you know, do you want to know where I, I first learned about Scottish people? What were our first guesses? Yeah, what was your first? Mike Myers and the guy <laughs> from The Simpsons. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, uh, the movie uh, about marrying an axe murderer um, uh-huh. or a character on The Simpsons, uh, those were things that I definitely paid attention to, but I, that was not where I initially learned about uh-huh. Scottish culture. Might be a short recording. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was some of the jokes in the show from the early 90s, Ren and Stimpy. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I learned about a shillelagh and haggis. Um, and kilts, and probably some other things like that. And of course, it was a cartoon. I knew it was a joke, but I was mm-hmm. horrified by haggis, uh, especially because I was vegetarian at the time. So you can imagine at the time. Uh, yes. Well, my parents raised me that way. Then I realized it was um, kind of ridiculous because it was arbitrary. <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> but the whole notion of of eating a sort of um, orgy of animal organs just didn't sound per- personally appealing. <laughs> Um, and then because the character in there that was Scottish was always angry. It was an old guy that would wave his stick around. Uh, he was very sentimental. Very sentimental but loud. He was sort of like um, a human version of those, um, I guess, the Scottish Terrier dog. Maybe that's what the cartoonists were going for. That Ren and Stimpy, that's taken me back to the house of next Tuesday. Oh, yes. The house of next Tuesday. Very advanced. Rick, do you remember this? Is this over your I head? I have not the foggiest idea what you're talking about. Excellent. But I do Let's want to point out to all, this, but to all <laughs> the Scottish people who are currently bashing their heads off their steering wheels in their car or in their, you know, fallout. Uh, apocalypse thought this was about watches I assume Ariel by (laughs) shillelagh you actually meant Kaylee right Rick take us into the show properly yes so into the show properly this is part two in the first part we ran through uh, sort of watches 101 going up to about a thousand dollar range now we are on the difficult second album which is going from about a thousand dollars up to twenty thousand and this is all based on an article uh, that Ariel wrote uh, around about 2009. So some of the stuff has moved on, which we will discuss. And frankly, a lot of the stuff has stayed just the same. So we're going to run through 10 things and then we're going to we're gonna riff off that much like we did in the last episode. And some of these will want quite a bit of conversation and some we will no doubt just uh, uh, pass through. But basically, in summary, this is really the start of expecting... You know, higher expectations of what you can get and what you should look for when purchasing a watch. So, Ariel, just before we go through the list, do you want to give us a wee summary of your kind of mindset, what you were thinking uh, for part two? That's so funny because I was just about to say I'd love to talk a little bit about the context and the history of this guide. Now, this series, I think all of us had in mind that it would be for novices, people just getting into watches that find understanding the difference between prices and what to look for <clears throat> abundantly complicated. The reason this guide was written in the first place back in 2009 is I, I understood that unless you were someone like us that truly obsessed over watches, permeating what the world of watches as a consumer was intimidating to say the least. Right, And so I wanted to help give people a shortcut to understanding getting into watches. Because one of the first things you do when you look at a watch is there's tech specs in front of you. And if you don't understand the context, maybe those technical specifications don't mean a thing to you. And so a lot of, this, a lot of these guides were based around information that you might see in tech specs. Now, when I published this in 2009, what I'm remembering now, just looking at it because I have it open on a blog to watch, was that I published these sequentially over a three-day period. So I put a lot of time into these, and I wrote these out. There was no gap between them. They just went out one in a row, and it was really designed to put out this sort of definitive list. And since then, 
while there have been other things purporting to be guides to getting into watches and things like that, none of them has ever come close to this for, I think, fairness. And let me explain what I mean by that. And this is, you, you'll, you'll tell me, maybe you think I'm wrong here. This guide has nothing to do with any specific brand. We, I don't know that I mentioned any brand. I wanted it to be brand agnostic because yeah. I don't want people to buy a brand. I want you to buy a watch, which is a piece of functional jewelry. Functional in that it's a tool, jewelry, in that it's supposed to be made well, using good materials to last a long time, and to also be beautiful. Functional jewelry. So this, for me, is a guide to how to understand buying functional jewelry. And now we're talking, as you brought up, this whole notion of getting into like a real luxury watch. Before it was like, you know, maybe up to, what was it, up to $1,000? Yeah, yeah, up to $1,000. And at the time, you could get a really horrible watch for nearly $1,000. Um, Still can. Yeah, uh, these days, it's in different ways. But these days, like, low-quality watches tend to be low-quality priced, right? Like, the like back in 2009, people were trying to get away with charging $800 or $900 for a watch that you and I would be like, this is like a $100 watch, guys. So we saw that all the time. And so... And, and we still see a lot of brands taking advantage of the fact that most consumers have no idea what's going on and can be seduced by marketing. So I was trying to um, wipe away the veil of marketing and allow people just getting into watches how to understand how to buy a tool. Would you agree or disagree that that's a wise thing to do for newcomers? Yes. Oh, absolutely. It's a, I mean, I think the whole agnostic purpose of the list works really well, uh, which does kind of lead me on to wanting to ask what actual watch you're wearing. But, uh, yeah, the, the whole idea of trying to sensibly assess what you should have, what you shouldn't have, and, and just be empowered to make a decision. Is an AR coating important to you? Well, did you even realise you had to think about it? Well, here's a list that's mentioned on that list. Now you know that it's worth thinking about, it's worth considering mm-hmm. uh, if you are going out and spending that kind of money. Especially if you're a kind of person that has somehow randomly come across this podcast and is only realistically ever going to buy one watch. Yeah, that's you know, where it starts, have, Rick. That's where it you're starts. not going to have... <laughs> it does start with one. learning experience of buying one and then going, oh, right, okay, I forgot. I didn't realize that that was an important thing. So hopefully this fills in uh, some of the gaps. Good, good. But let's actually fill in that first gap. Ricky, what watch are you actually wearing? Well, today I am wearing probably a watch, not this particular edition, but the style of watch, the type of watch. It's the Omega Speedmaster. And the particular mm-hmm. one I have in my collection, the only one I have in my collection, is the Apollo 8, which came out mm-hmm. just over a year, well, a little bit more than a year ago, but it was in short supply back then, and it is a ceramic watch, manual wind movement, and it's to celebrate the Apollo space mission number 8. Now, that is an expensive uh, watch, and I'm sure it falls over one of the hurdles from last week, which is legibility. It's actually quite easy to read. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, the... The actual lunar surface that is laser ablated on the the dial area of the watch, it's quite hard to to see that, but the hands prominently stand out atop that, so you actually can tell the time in good lighting conditions. What are you wearing yourself, Rick? I am wearing an Oleg & Weiss C1000 Diver. Very Ah. nice. Quite an old-fashioned jangly bracelet. It's it's a new version. I think they had an old one, which was a 1,000 metre. This is the... The, the, the newer one, very nice, very neat, actually a lot neater than I thought it was going to be. Uh, the Lumon is phenomenal, yep, quite like it. What about yourself, Ariel? That brand, Oleg, that's that's persisted. Like, it's, I think that, you know, I, they don't do a lot of marketing. Their watches are interesting no. and quirky. Like, what is it about that? I'm just, I, I'm not trying to change the topic. I'm just saying, like, I'm fascinated yeah. by that brand's persistence. You know what I mean? Did they not just buy the name? Somebody, I'm trying to think who did it. It would have been the TikTok collector. would have been Logan. There's a article on the website that gives you a bit of history uh, about them. They're just a little bit different. A little bit. You know, it's a dive watch, so it does what dive watches do but it just has enough of its own aesthetic to make it interesting it's you know it's not a as we discussed in the last episode of of, of watches 101 it's not a submariner clone it's it is it's very much its own thing and it's quirky which so has value i have a lot of watches yeah. quite like that i was wearing a bunch of watches earlier i this was on my desk and i put it on it's a rotary watch it's a oh, new okay. one from their heritage collection it's uh it's it's got this dial which has like crosshairs in the middle 
So it looks uh-huh. like like an old Omega. Uh, not exactly. I, again, there's nothing. It, it it's based upon some old Rotary, and I know Rotary is a company mm-hmm. that was important in the UK. I never grew up with Rotary. Yes. I didn't learn about it until later on. But I actually was invited to the office of Rotary in London, and I got to meet the team. Um, and I learned about the story from them. And such a passionate group of people. It's it's owned by a Chinese group now, I believe. But yeah. it's so great that they still you know are essentially based in 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 London and still make decisions out of there which I thought was really cool. So um, that's what I'm wearing. So first up this week is probably where we'll spend the most time, which is actually mechanical movements and the importance thereof or consideration thereof when venturing into proper luxury watch territory between that kind of one and $20,000, £20,000 type mark. So mechanical movements, an enormous amount of time is spent writing about the importance in-house movements, in movements from movement manufacturers. How has this changed, Ariel, since you first wrote this to where we find the market now? That's a that's a really good question. Um, and the context of two thousand nine was that was still still most people had no idea about um, spring drive. Uh, there was mm-hmm. there was not really a term high end quartz. It was very obscure. You know, if you were buying a luxury watch and it was quartz in any way, shape, or form, there was a good chance that <clears throat> you were being, you know, you were being taken for a ride, or you're buying a woman's watch with diamonds all over it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah. that's that was basically, you know, quartz's relationship um, with luxury. Now, years later, I still don't think that quartz is a significant part of this range. Um, Mm-hmm. You're talking 1,000 to 20,000, which is a big spread. And I'm remind me to talk about the spread, the price, the way I differentiate the price after I answer this, because that's actually a really important part of this conversation. Um, but yeah, you have smartwatches and things like that in the up to $3,000 level at this point. You know, last week I was, or the week before that, I was in New York City for the launch of the Tag Heuer Connected. And this watch starts at about 1800 bucks. And goes to about twenty three hundred dollars, and there's been you know way more expensive um, you know smartwatches out there. Apple, when they first introduced the Apple Watch, had a solid gold one. The gold one, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I think that there's a nice slice of the market now, which is for non mechanical movements. But I do believe that the majority of quartz watches and smartwatches. Are, operate in you know similar concept are going to be under a thousand while there is going to be a high-end segment the high-end segment that's above a thousand or a few thousand is is probably still going to be um still going to be something like a mechanical watch you know there's not going to be that many devon treads around so that's a shame well it's it's really a for now thing and Mm. you know America, there's been talk here for years now about oh let's make let's make watch movements in America again let's make watch movements in America again and I always ask myself you know like that's cool and all but does anybody in America really want like an American made like mechanical watch movement like wouldn't like because the quartz movement that technology was essentially invented here too you know the core technology like maybe an American made movement should be some fancy. Um, quartz movement or electronic movement or some next generation thing because we are now in the smartwatch era entering Mm -hmm. a world where uh, dumb electronic watches or uh, aka software-less electronic watches probably will enter a new era of nostalgia and interest probably uh like maybe hi-fi a little bit and it's it's still a very small and niche territory there's not there's maybe no one doing it as intense as i'm talking about but I think that there could be a hundred thousand dollar electronic watch, um, you know, within depending on the economy, but you know, within within a decade or so, and it's not going to be that weird, and it's going to be amazing, and it's going to blow our minds. Well, it's a good point you raise there because obviously there is a deep history, such as Hamilton with the Pulsar, that as we're recording this is half a century in existence and they've put out a commemorative edition people sort of forget all those kind of things and yeah and people think watches the public think watches it's always switzerland all the the innovations are over in switzerland people think rolex is a swiss company it's actually a british company yeah <laughs> and it's only a matter of time before the japanese ha- get to experience what switzerland has experienced for the last couple of decades which is swiss made means luxury made in japan is increasingly meaning luxury as well 
And so yeah. you're going to see a lot more celebration of what they've done and how that's going to have Casio and Seiko and Citizen Evolve is, you know, you're, you're, we're, we can only guess, but I think it's going to be a very interesting future for luxury watches and that it's going to be way more than a Swiss game. So when assessing uh, the whys and wherefores of buying a watch and looking at a mechanical movement, we had a brief conversation in the last episode about the differences between an in-house movement, uh, which we'd obviously cover a lot in this price range, and we'll come on to your price range question in a second, and the movements from the likes of ETA, Salita, uh, whoever else, Seiko even, uh, in Japan. What What is your feeling about the value of an in-house movement versus a workhorse, or what you would traditionally call a workhorse movement that obviously all watchmakers grow up on and can fix. Yeah, I mean, look, this conversation for people just getting into watches might be difficult to penetrate, but I think it's important to appreciate the amount of emotion and effort and thought that goes into this. Like, if I didn't know anything about watches and I understood how people argue about the size of watches, like, you know, like how many millimeters wide it is, I'd be like, <laughs> why would they care? Like, it'd be like, it'd be uh-huh. like people arguing about, like, how long your vehicle is. Like, no one cares how long it is as long as it drives well. Um, and... It's like that with watches. There's these things that we get super emotional about that can be very confusing to other people. Um, I recommended that at a lower price range, you want a movement that is more ordinary because it's going to be made in a higher volume. It's going to be of a higher quality, easier to fix, cheaper to replace. And that's still true in a lot of ways in this sort of medium range of luxury between one and 20,000. But your expectations can certainly go up. So let's look at the difference between a mass-produced you know, $100 movement and then maybe a mass-produced Rolex movement and a mass-produced Patek Philippe movement. In their own Uh way, all of these movements are mass-produced and designed to work and be fixed and things like that. But as you go up the the, the ladder, you're going to have more um, precision mechanics. They're going to last even longer. They're going to be better decorated. You know, so I think that when you start to get out of certain price points in the four or $5,000 area, and you start to go up from there, you start to want to see movements that look really pretty. And you don't have to spend an enormous yeah. money, amount of money on there, but I think the attractiveness of the movement is what you start to want at you know, maybe above fifteen dollars or $20,000. And you know, so it needs to be a good movement, and then it needs to be an attractive good, good movement. There's a lot of attractive bad movements. There's a lot of ugly, amazing movements. So because we buy these things, again, as functional jewelry, they have to work well and look well. So I think at the, at the you know, price points of like $1,000 to $5,000, um, I would be very suspicious of anything that isn't mass-produced. If it's mass-produced in-house by like a Seiko or, you know, a, a, you know like a Turna makes their own stuff and things like that, Fossil has uh-huh. STP. Yes, these are volume productions. And so does it have to be like your basic Edda or Salita? No. There's more alternative these day, these days. Um, but then you start to get into like watches that are like $15,000 that have a in-house movement just because. It doesn't do anything uh-huh. that your rank and file uh, Edda movements don't do. Maybe it has different power reserve or something like that. It's got the same complications, but you're spending a heck of a lot more. And yes, it's technically different. It might be prettier. But the point I'm trying to get to is that once you get to the medium range luxury and the high luxury, if you're buying an in-house movement, only buy it if it does something that maybe a more standard movement can't do. Because what you're really getting there is not just the originality on, on paper alone, but the distinctive originality so that it looks different and that it, it, it really operates differently, which I think what collectors are ultimately interested in at those higher end levels. What do you guys think? Yes, I think it's a very good point you make about looking at how many of the movements are produced. Are you buying a mass-produced movement at the price point that you're going in and then taking cognizance of recognising what that means in terms of repair, spare parts, warranty, the ability to go to a non-authorised uh, repairer in 5, 10, 15 years time. So that's where you get your Rolex movements. They're making a million of these a year or a Breitling movement or even Tudor's new in-house movements versus going up a level and buying a watch that may have a movement that's only in three or 400 watches ever. Uh, now, that's got a value in that it's got a rarity and that's what luxury is all about. 
but it also introduces a big question uh, in that if they only made 300 of these movements, you better believe it's going to cost you a lot of money to uh, uh, keep it going, get it fixed, and if the watch company that you buy it from is no longer here in 15 or 20 years' time, yeah. then when you've passed that watch on to your grandkids, they ain't going to be able to get it fixed very cheaply either. Even finding vintage parts for 40-year-old Omegas, which is one of the biggest brands in the world, is proven to be quite difficult and watchmakers are having to fabricate and customise certain components just to keep them running now. Yeah, I... I, yeah. I Look, vintage that vintage is a whole other thing. I have a lot of admiration <laughs> for people that can put up with vintage watches because it's a, it's a headache sometimes. Um but you know with with movements, I've gone back and forth a lot. I've written very negative things about what what in-house movements have done to the industry, but I can't deny that there's a certain appeal to them. Practically, they're sometimes more of a headache, but emotionally they're a little bit more gratifying. I think what has made me sad sometimes is that the watch industry has not used the opportunity of in-house movements to do truly innovative things. Oftentimes, they've done things just to raise their prices or to, ver- to more vertically integrate, which in a lot of ways has not been good for the industry. So it's this very much love-hate thing. I do think that in my collection, um, there's this nice mixture of in-house made and, and not in-house made and things like that. And, and I'm happy with it. I don't look at it and be like, oh, I wish I had more in-house made. So it's, it's really a case-by-case basis. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't not buy a watch because it didn't have an in-house made movement. That's really the point. If there's a watch you like and you're like, oh, but that movement isn't in-house made, do not let that stop you. That's a very poor reason. I mean, it could have a bad movement, so don't buy a bad movement. But just because it's not in-house made, never let that you know, hinge your decision. And alternatively, if if someone is pushing a watch on you and saying, but the movement's in-house, but the movement's in-house, that alone shouldn't be a reason to buy a watch. So it's like an icing on the cake, but it shouldn't really be like a deal maker or breaker. Well, leading on from that, we have the question of certification on movements. So what's your feelings and thoughts on that compared to where you were just over a decade ago when you penned the article? Yeah, um, and this again, if I, if I said earlier in the conversation, and I'll say it again now, about how to a novice, there's a lot of technical information that's given to them on paper. And they see mm. things like cost chronometer certification. And they might have no idea what that means, but we know that, I mean, there's some not amazing watches that are chronometer certified, but like that tends to be a good thing, right? Like, no, no watch this cost like they ha- they at least have to understand the desires of a watch lover to even appreciate that someone cares about that. You're thinking about an enthusiast audience, and so the idea is that anytime there's a certification, even if it's just a cost chronometer certification, it has enthusiasts in mind. Otherwise, why would they even bother? There's no necessary yeah. certifications. These are all in a sense voluntary. So if a company goes out of its way to have some type of um, certification related to horology or quality, you know, we have things like the Geneva seal and stuff like that, which is more. Um, but that's, that, that's never a bad thing. So the idea is if you see these certifications, it is also a plus factor. It's something to make you realize, oh, they have people that really like watches in mind when they were designing this. Cool. And explain, Ricky or Ariel, in terms of cost certification, and other certifications that exist, that a lot of uh, time and effort is spent on understanding the number of positions in which a watch is tested. And this is maybe something to watch out for in terms of not all certifications are equal, although all are maybe worth having, as you suggest. Well, as an add-on to that, I would say, (laughs) Ariel, can you list the different types of certifications? Because you mentioned their COSC which you can explain what that stands for, because I can't. Uh, you've also got Metas <laughs> from Omega, and you've got Superlative Chronometer from Rolex. So do you want to explain the, the sort of nuances and differences between them for listeners that might not quite know? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to do my best. Look, it's actually, this is kind of nerdery. So, I mean, we find this interesting, but honestly, um, <laughs> these certifications, at the end of the day, are dense, and to understand the differences is... This is like this is very advanced level stuff. That's all I'm saying. There's the yeah. two basic type of certifications are ones that are given by third parties and ones that are given by the brands themselves, which is a little bit of a strange thing if you think about it. Um, Rolex certifies their own watches as being Rolex certified. It becomes sort of a, a circle, a circular argument. Patek Philippe does the same thing. Ulysses Nardon does the same thing. Um, 
it's not completely meaningless because they're basically saying every watch that has a certification has these attributes. So they're not really performance certifications. They're more like we have a promise and that every watch that has this certification fulfills these promises. Like, you know, it's more like that, whereas COSC is a little mm-hmm. bit more about performance. And it basically says, um, and the positions is, again, that's super nerdery. But the idea is if the watch oriented in different positions averaged out has this accuracy um, per day. And that's really what it's about because a long time ago, before people had super accurate quartz watches everywhere, you had to rely on mechanical watches to be on time. And because everyone knew that mechanical watches were so fallible, it was a really good thing to get an accurate one. And what people would do, and again, I I never lived in this generation, so I had to like learn this, is you're constantly like, looking at your clock your watch and then other clocks and you're like if the time is different you're like which one is wrong and then you have to like average it out and it's like constantly this game of like resetting your watch all the time to a watch that you think is accurate so people would have like a watch that they walk by like a clock that they walk by every day that they know is accurate and then they set their watch to it is that from the american railroad system that that became quite important i think it was just practical it, you needed your watch to be on time and if you knew that your mechanic look if most people couldn't afford the really accurate ones and back then like 10 seconds a day was like not uncommon so you have to adjust your watch once a week but then you know that other mechanical watches are also inaccurate so which one do you trust you trust the one that yeah. someone from that you know you, that gets the correct time from the the telegraph signals or whatever and updates it. I mean, there's all these ways over history of doing it, um, mm-hmm. but you had to know what the trusted clocks were so you could adjust your watch to it. It was just a practical thing. Yeah, and do you want to tell the listeners what COSC stands for? Uh, so COSC <laughs> is the name of the agency in Switzerland. So it's just a French term that's like the the center of you know chronometric you know testing. It's it's not. It's it's not like a fancy term. It's silly, um, but well avoided. But, but, uh, mm-hmm. We were we were we were waiting for a good French accent yeah. there. We thought we you're not, you're not, yes, and you're not going <laughs> to get it with this one. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> good stuff. So uh. that's us looked at mechanical movement and the testing. Uh, some other quick things, which maybe sound really minor, but actually, and this falls on from an Instagram live that Ricky did last night with. Uh, uh, Gigi for uh, and they were looking at a unimatic watch. Yeah, I think it was a SpongeBob SquarePants watch. Is that right? The SpongeBob one, which has no, or certainly in the video last night, it didn't look like it had much in the way of AR coating on it. So anti-reflective coating, something you might not consider to be terribly important. But actually, if you kind of read the thing, because the sun's behind you okay. or in front of you or the side of you, and completely obscures as. Uh, the video we did showed last night of that of a particular watch, which I think deliberately is like that. It's I deliberately so. supposed yeah. to look really, really shiny. So it's not a criticism of Unimatic. It's supposed to be that way in their case. Mm-hmm. But I think you, you just criticised Unimatic, by the way. Have a, is that a bad thing? <laughs> GG, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The whole of Italy is melting down and I'm criticising their exports. It's terrible. I'm a bad man. So what you're saying is they actually apply a reflective coating? Yes, they, they have as a reflective coating rather than an anti-reflective coating. Because so, they both exist. Uh, yeah. Yes, they do. I think they actually genuinely do apply a reflective coating. Okay, so why, why Erica? A watch is supposed to be an instrument that you look at, you read information, ideally as quickly as possible. And if you look at all these great watches throughout history and instruments, there's, there's clarity. It's really important. Meaning being able to look at it and not having things uh, obstruct you from what you're trying to do. And a lot of people don't necessarily think of it this way, but one of the ways that they value a watch is in when they look, when they look at the dial, how easily you can read the information. And if we think about user interfaces and gauges and those things that we like over the years, the ones that we like the best are ones that we can read easily. So it's the exact same way with a watch. And what I find is that people end up wearing watches longer if they can read the time. So people sometimes might buy a trendy watch or one that they like the design, but then they wear it for a while and they realize, boy, this is really hard to read. They take it off and they don't put it back on. So I've seen an enormous amount of behavior that tells me people abandon watches that are hard to read. And making a watch that's easy to read is a challenge. Sometimes uh, companies get lucky. Oftentimes it's this very nuanced approach to 
having the right materials, the right distances, the right finishes, and of course one of the most important things is the right shape of the crystal as, right, as well as the right type and amount of AR coating. And it gets in this whole area of do you put AR coating on the top and the bottom, one or the other, how many layers do you do, what's the shape of the crystal. This is a whole endless conversation, but the bottom line is that um, good AR coating prevents glare. Glare is one of the primary things that makes the watch difficult to read because it obstructs the dial. It's also ugly. It also looks cheap. So if super cheap watches don't use AR coating and they're reflective and horrible to look at. And what the light ends up doing is literally blurring. It, it causes blurry spots on the dial. And that's horrible. It'd be like looking through the world with cataracts. And that's not what you want on your watch. So the more clear you can see the dial, the better. AR coating is a really important part of being able to see a dial clearly, especially when there's light and there's almost always light. So AR coating is actually just part of the larger thing, which is look at legibility, but it's really easier if you tell someone, take a good look at the AR coating. And I imagine that if you're in a watch store, for example, and you guys tell me if you disagree, you're going to go to some to a salesperson and say, hey, tell me about the AR coating. And if it's really bad AR coating, the, the salesperson's not going to have that much to say. But if you are a novice and you ask to to hear about the AR coding and it's good AR coding, then you're going to take a better look and see the legibility, and you're going to you're going to you're going to pay attention to things you may have not paid attention to before. Uh, was that was that a good long answer for why AR coding is important? Why don't you Rolex use it then, apart from on their Cyclops? Sure. So this 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 gets into an interesting thing. So AR coding is a coding, and it can it can wear off over time. And long time ago, AR coatings would wear off quite easily because there's no protector on top of the AR coating. And when it wore off, it looked pretty bad. So certain companies wanted their watches to look good over time and tried to play a lot of tricks to make it so that you didn't need the top layer of AR coating because they're worried that it would scratch off. And one of the simplest things to do is have a flat sapphire crystal because flat sapphire crystals um, don't need as much AR coating because they don't reflect light right. as much. Uh, right. but, but having a domed one makes the watch look better, and Rolex wants their watches to look better, so they use, um, not all, but, uh, you know, so a lot of them are, are, are flats. So I th actually, does Rolex use any domed? It's mostly flat. So one of the things that they do is make it flat so they don't need as much of it. Um, and another thing is that a lot of companies today simply haven't gotten around to focusing on their error coding quite as much. There's plenty of watches that are $20,000 and up, $50,000 up, $100,000 and up that have terrible crystals with not enough AR coating. It's a very simple thing to get wrong. One of the easy reasons is it's all reliant on suppliers. Very few companies make their own sapphire crystals. Um, not that many ever coat their sapphire crystals. This is always done by some type of third-party company. And those companies, every little extra thing costs more money. So they're trying to save cash. So there's certain companies like Zinn. Zinn's my, one of my favorite brands to talk about when it comes to AR coating because they're nuts with it. Like, like yes. they do so much. I think there's like seven layers of AR coating on each side. Like Zinn is like, we don't want to see a single piece of light reflected on, the, on any watch we make ever. And they do such a great job on most of their watches with having amazing AR coating. It's just a mm -hmm. matter of taking the time and effort. So when you're buying a watch at the $1,000 and up price point, especially near the $20,000 price point, you are paying for attention to details. And not getting the AR coded correct demonstrates great negligence when it comes to paying attention to details. And getting it right shows, at the very least, someone cared about that. Who thought we could spend 10 minutes speaking about AR coating, but it turns out we can't. I just want to know why you need to apply seven coats as opposed to just one coat, but slightly thicker. That's the way I paint walls. It's like painting a car, Rick. It'll go all bubbly <laughs> yeah. and blotchy yeah. and orange peel. What he said. What he said, right. <laughs> okay, from AR coating, I, 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 you know, I thought we'd get through AR coating quickly. I'm now worried about the next one because I thought we'd get through the next one quickly. And that is, and I, I suspect that this is, because this is real geekdom, I, you hear mo more folks speak about this than you do about AR coating and that is screwed bracelet end links <laughs> and I'll add to that drilled lugs just for good measure okay so this is not a hard and fast rule I want to I want to impress upon this is a this is like a strong hint and right these days there's a lot of less expensive watches that do use screws um, rather than these little bars and it, it Again, this is a little bit more relevant back in 2009, but the idea is essentially this. You want every piece of the watch 
to have a high level of construction. And that, of course, includes the bracelet. Watches with bracelets tend to have, like, the watch case be better quality than the bracelet. It's very uncommon that the bracelet is just as nicely made as the case. And so appreciating a good bracelet is something that I think a lot of people um, definitely enjoy as part of their watch collecting hobby. These days, with the popularity of the, you know, what they call the Gerald Genta-esque designs, um, integrated bracelets, everyone's obsessed with bracelets these days. No one speaks about them as intelligently as I hope they would, but you know, if you're into bracelets, it's a whole other world of nerdery that we could talk about. And I promise, guys, I'm not going to talk for 10 minutes about it, though. We could literally do a whole episode, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> these little bars that we're talking about, they're, they're, they're these tension bars, um, they're less expensive. They're less durable. Um, you have They're sort of inelegant as they come in and out. Interestingly enough, as I think we all know, functionally, I don't really think you can make a very good argument that like screws are more durable, maybe if they're super thick. But at the end of the day, it's not... It's not really about the, the your bracelet lasting a long time. It's just more about having a more solid construction of high-end parts, as many parts uniquely made. And I think we all agree that there's a massive difference in bracelet qualities across the board. And we've seen watches yeah. that are very expensive that have bracelets. We're like, this does not belong on this watch. Very true. Now, a quick question there would be a brand that some people may have heard of, because this is obviously second episode, so it's not beginner territory. We're kind of intermediate. You may have heard of Patek Philippe. Now, their most famous watch out there is the Nautilus, the 5711, and that went from having screws to push pins. So, do you know what was the, the reasoning behind that, do you think? Uh, it was thickness, I'm sure. Rick, you're the expert on being thick. Do you agree? <laughs> I, don't, I suspect it was money. Money. As <laughs> they wanted the, more of it. The, they wanted more of it. They woke up one morning and decided, you know what, let's make some more money, and so we'll save some stuff here. So, I don't know. Never having actually held a 5711 i really can't comment let's move on case quality and finish very quickly obviously as things get more expensive the ability for the watch brand to spend more money on the finishing improves and i guess it's about trying to get the cost to match the finish that's at the lower end at the kind of two three thousand dollar you can find some great finishing and at the twenty thousand you can find some terrible finishing and it's supposed to be trying to get the budget to match the finish yeah that's again that's one of the reasons that i i felt it was important to make guides like this is that what's similar today even though it's a little bit less today it's in 2009 is that price of a watch didn't really always give you a good promise about quality. Like, there was a lot of really bad $20,000 watches. Um, mm -hmm. So case finishing <clears throat> is really about surface decoration. And the world of watch appreciation is also the world of appreciating ways of finishing metal and other types of materials. But it's mostly metal. So the weird world of polishes and brushes and bead blasting and satinization and... All the nerdery about how to do all that is one of the most important areas of, of jewelry and making watches. It's not discussed that much because it's really nerdy and not necessarily a lot of people understand or want to talk about it. And they don't really know where good finishes come from. Um, sometimes machines make the best finishing. Sometimes people's hands make the best finishing. It really depends. And I've seen great finishing from both and terrible finishing from both. So... I think one of the things I ask people to, to do, especially if you're a novice, is take a watch and look at the corners of the case or the bracelet and see what the transitions are. Are they, sh are they sharp edges but not too sharp? Like, do they look like they're jagged, like they're just machined? And if there's definitely two different polished styles, for example, a brush surface and a polished surface, look at the transition between the two. The sharper the transition, usually the higher quality. A low-quality watch will have like a blurry transition between the two. Flat surfaces are very, very important. So even if it's curved, you, don't, you look closely, you don't want to see it sort of ripply. A good watch is made from a machined metal, right? So metal, to turn into a, a, a case, it goes through a series of processes, a series of steps. And the more expensive a watch, the more steps the pieces went through that comprise it. So it's very much the idea that you are, when you spend a lot of money, it's for a reason. It's for time, it's for effort, it's for expense. You, you spend $20,000 on a watch, you want to make sure that's a $20,000 watch, that they put, you know, mm. a bunch of money into all the little steps. So the finishing on a, on a watch is what makes it look great. You can, it's something you can tell with your eyes. You need to, you need to look carefully. 
And it's this universal thing. There's no disagreement out there on what good finishing is. We can disagree on colors and shapes and sizes. No, you could, nobody says a watch is amazing finishing and someone else says, no, that's horrible. Like, it's one of the yes. universal things. And we can appreciate great finishing on an otherwise ugly watch. It's one of the wonderful things that we can all agree upon in this world of watch appreciation, which I find is interesting. But if you're just getting into watches, you don't necessarily know about it. And the world of inexpensive watches has spent many years and a lot of time and money recreating techniques in cheaper form to create higher-end looks. So a good example is like a, a plating which is meant to look like a polished surface. A polished surface literally has someone or a machine like rubbing it with something. Whereas a plated item never goes through that and has a coating that's meant to look shiny. This is what chroming is, that made to mm -hmm. look like it was polished, but no one actually did. So it's, a, it's like faux polishing. And you see this on watches all the time. You see what appears to be a nicer finish, but in fact is not done in as high quality a way. So this is an area that if you're getting into this price point, you really want to start to think about. And the best judge is your own eyes. Because as, as people, once you have um, a little bit of experience, you tend to know what good finishing is and reasonable people agree on what it looks like. Good old. Uh, we'll join this into the next one because the question I want to ask about both of these, which is to do with Superluminova. Uh, so that's specifically a way in which the watch will allow you to see the time when it's dark. But why would you be specifically, well, what specifics would you be looking for in the type of material they use for illumination on the watch face? That's a, that's a really good point. And again, this is one of those things that goes into I'm hunting for inf information on a tech spec sheet and things have changed a little bit. There's different types of luminance. Superluminova is a particular brand and it's expensive. And so the idea is that if somebody in the technical specs proudly said that they use Superluminova, A, they know that they're speaking to a watch consumer audience. B, they, they spent money on the good stuff. Now, in the last 10 years, there's been different types of looms out there, so it's not just Superluminova in the game, though they're primarily the one that you see. So seeing Superluminova on a less expensive watch still happens, and seeing something other than Superluminova occasionally happens. Rolex, for example, uses their own specific in a formulation. Um, but you might see tritium gas tubes, you know, and that might be fine on a watch that's up to several thousand dollars. Um, and th that was something which is a little bit less common back then. So this, is, this isn't something to like focus on too much. But if a watch does have lume, and not all of them do, if your watch doesn't have any luminant, this entire part of the conversation is, is moot. Um, but if it does, look for ones that advertise these sort of higher end or more name brand features because it's going to demonstrate this enthusiast watch. Remember them trying to help people avoid expensive watches aren't worth it because back then there was not as many people online looking at watches. There was not as much information. It was easier to get deceived. Well, I'm going to have an aside there and say that even on the really inexpensive Seiko watches I've seen, their own brand in-house Loom, I think, what's it called? Is it Loom? Luma Bright. Luma Bright, that's right. It is extraordinary. It's very good. That's my little sort of take on that. Maybe that that's changed in the last 10 years or so. It used to be like low-end Seiko watches didn't have good loom for a long time. You had to buy like the really expensive one. So even back then, um, you, you had issues with watches that that seem to have good loom but like at the end of the day didn't really have good loom. and there's like you know the blotchy loom it's or it just it just doesn't work very well um yeah. i saw a lot of this happening and, and these were the people that didn't say you know super luminova so again this is this is definitely one of the sort of less important things but if you're super neuter watches you you, you want to know what terminology to at least look for i think it's important to point out so super luminova is actually a brand yes it's not a generic description so super luminova is what you're looking for now to just bring those two points together about case quality and finish and super luminova how should people go into an authorized dealer when buying a watch and it's all great big bright lights shining from multiple directions so that you don't get the reflections in the same way that you do what should you do other than saying can i take this watch out into the street which they're unlikely to let you to actually try and assess the case finishing the quality i mean the point of view is the watch is well lit there ain't going to be a dark corner 
uh, to go and check out the loom unless they let you switch the lights out. Anybody ever tried taking a watch outside I have. to see what it looks like in natural daylight while followed by security? Have when you? I bought my second watch, well, second watch that I kept, the Tudor Fast Rider Black Shield, I actually asked if I could take right. it out to see what it was like in sunlight, and they allowed me to do so. Is that right? And you were wearing your biker jacket and had your helmet under your arm and the bike uh, was waiting outside? The bike outside. was running outside and I had my accomplice <laughs> with me, yes. <laughs> I don't know how to assess loom. I mean, you can cover it with your hand. I suppose you do get kind of day loom if it's if the illuminate I've got a panerai and if the illumination is really good and you get it in the sunshine then as soon as you just walk into even a slightly darker space you can appreciate uh, appreciate we've, had, uh, we've played how, loom how wars when we've done our live podcast recordings before obviously my Seiko yes. one but you know you're following Seiko beat, beat my panerai loom wars my panerai I didn't know that I, I, th- I thought we were the sole loom nerds no no, no. <laughs> I didn't realize that there was uh, another faction I'm, out there I am just adding hashtag loom wars. It's dark here all the time. We need to find something to entertain us. Okay, so David from our team is one of our nerdiest loom appreciators. And uh-huh. he just like, he, get, he, used to, he would get really excited using his phone light. So he would do this. He would kind of like, as a fidgeting thing, use his phone like flashlight to charge up loom. And he did this little like rotating thing on his wrist where he's moving the light to make sure like every numeral got it. And then and then he'd see how bright it was. And he'd show everyone, everyone look, look how light. And then he'd, he'd, he'd say, <laughs> wow, you know, like a, like, a, like, a, like a small child is seeing something the first time. He's so amazed by it. And we were all so charmed by it. And I was like, I wonder if anyone else does this. Yes, they do. At Red Bar events across the world. <laughs> so next up, Rick, we have Brand pedigree yes brand pedigree so yeah i suppose this is about to my mind this is about not spending a lot of money on a watch without just checking out who you're buying it from (laughs) so you know rolex aren't going anywhere especially in this current climate if you go and buy a watch from well we can let's speak about them because they're no longer there if you just spent 20 grand on a romaine jerome watch you would be pretty annoyed now that they don't exist and your warranty's up with Swanee. But they still have I brand assume. pedigree. Well, you don't, do they? Yes. So do you suppose it's all about the fact they could come back? Well, Should okay. we go after RJ as a brand? This is <laughs> this is a whole amazing conversation. And I love, I love brands in general. I'm fascinated by the concept. I think there's a very specific thing that I'm trying to mention here. And again, this is especially to novices. Um, there's, this, there's this thing where there's a lot of companies out there who don't primarily make watches, but work with someone that does and releases a watch. And sometimes the result of those are great, but oftentimes they're really not. And so what, give us an example. Um, sometimes like a like a jeweler, for example, will come out like an in-house line of watches. I don't. I hate I hate naming names because sometimes it's not fair. But like what mm-hmm. what they have to do to get a watch is so much more expensive than a company that makes watches. Right, mm-hmm. so either they're not good or they're vastly overpriced because essentially they had to buy a brand new product and then you know increase the price because they're selling it to someone else, um, mm-hmm. or it's a company that is uh, you know maybe makes something you know else like pants or something like that and that's mostly what they do and there's nothing inherently wrong with them making a watch but look it's it's a question that consumers need to ask themselves is really the point. What does this brand represent? In an ideal world, you buy a watch from a company that wanted to make a good watch. And most of the time, that means a company that's been making watches for a long time, and that's what they're stepped to do. Like, you go to Casio, yes, they make other stuff, but like, it all started with watches. And like, they have amazing pedigree when it comes to watches because like, look at all the watches they've made. Look at all the years that they had to get good at making watches. If a company is like, oh, we just made our first $20,000 watch, you're like, there's definitely going to be some kinks in that. So I tell people, <laughs> try to find a brand that seems dedicated to making watches and has taken some measures to make sure that they've figured it out. That's all. Yes. Yeah, again, touching on a specific aesthetic, and this is to do with uh, observable movements, dial design, etc., etc. Some people like them, some people don't. I am a big fan of seeing the watch movement. If it's a nice watch movement, then so much the better. If it's not, it's still nice to know that it's there and that it's not a bunch of squirrels in the back of the watch. I would love to have a bunch of tiny squirrels on my watch. I would, I mean, come on. It's like an ant farm, but like way more cuddly. There's a Jacob and Co watch out there for everyone. (laughs) 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 Movement decoration, observable movements, pro or against? Who's against decorated movements? Is someone like, no, sir. 
too much too much fun this is for too, time too keeping. much fun the fun police kick your door in how dare you get I, any I mean, enjoyment out of knowing what time it is <laughs> but this is the thing that's always amazed me about rolex is they have nothing on the case back it's always the thing when i look at a rolex makes me think surely this is fake because nobody has put any effort whatsoever into putting anything on the case back it's just a hunk of steel but they still decorate their movements even though you can't see them yes yeah, so is it red and they have the okay. wee red uh, no they've got the engine turning on the, the bridges and the plates as well I've, 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 to be honest I've never opened the back of a Rolex there, there's, there's some know. decoration they're not they're not mm-hmm. ugly movements by no means no no mm-hmm. I mean is that just a sign of quality that a company and you're never going to see the movement is still making the movement look nice. Look, I mean, as you get up in price points, we talked about the fact that you're buying human hours, you're buying attention to detail, uh, you're buying visual beauty. And I think the message that may not always be clear sometimes to people who are, who are asked to spend a lot of money on a watch is that beauty needs to extend throughout. It's not just the dial, it's the dial and the case. And the movement is really about you know, the heritage of the watch. The watch industry isn't an industry of cases and hands and dials. Well, I guess it is, but it all began with a movement. In fact, you know, the, the, the watchmaking country in Switzerland, uh, they just made movements and then they delivered them down to Geneva and they got paired with a case and a dial later on, right? Yeah. So the, yeah. the movement is the heart of being into watches. Uh, it's the place to nerd out. And you look at the movement a lot. It's actually a very practical thing. Because you mo- look at the movement a lot, especially the more expensive the watches, you want to have a good experience. So let's take like a crazy example that's way more than $20,000, Grubel Force. Like the attraction to the watch is just how nice everything looks. You're just like, I just want to keep staring at it. Mm-hmm. And knowing that pleasure, I want to make sure if someone spends $20,000 on a watch, they don't want to take their eyes off of it. And an easy way to ensure that is to make sure that the movement itself is attractive. So the decoration is an added cost after the watch is manufactured. Manufacturing creates an industrial finishing, which can be fine, and some of them are actually attractive. But decoration, whether or not it's by a hand or a machine, is an extra process. What does that mean? More time, more value in the watch. I believe that a watch should be assessed by its inherent value. I do not like assessing emotional value to watches. I mean, that's the entire auction market, right? It's all about emotional value and things like that. And there's there's a lot of emotional buying. It, it, it's it's in part of the game. But as a collector myself, I hate making um, decisions about watches if it's if it's an emotional investment. I want to feel that I am purchasing um, inherent quality and time and effort. And decoration is a big part of that. And again, it's one of those finishing touches. You know, anyone can make a car, not anyone can make a beautiful car. The beauty inherent in the car is oftentimes not at all related to its ability to go from point A to point B, but it definitely affects how much you want it. So I'm basically telling people when and saying this, a major reason why we people value watches is being able to have a beautifully designed and finished movement as well as being able to see it. If you can't see it, that's not the end of the day. But if it's a super ugly movement that looks like crap, you know what? I'm sorry. You probably don't want to put top dollar into that. So move this on then to the whole idea of the next one, which is unique design. So within movements, you have workhorse movement, standard stuff. But then within the overall aesthetic, you're looking for something that's a bit more unique. Now, there are lots of watches that look very similar uh, from great big design houses, great big uh, watch companies. So what is it that you think of? Rick, I think we should bounce this back to you and talk about your Gorilla watch. Yes. So I have a Gorilla watch, which is a flying hours complication. Which I got one right here too. Have you? Which yep. one have you got? The I've got uh, the red one, the original one. Have you, got the, have you got the green one? No, no, the original, the red and black one. The red and black one, yes, I have one of them. Yeah. So, there we go. So, uh, and what attracted me to that was the movement. I always wanted a, 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 a dial readout like that, with that complication. A star but wheel. The star wheel, but to do that, you're normally looking to spend fifteen, twenty thousand dollars or pounds or whatever, and there are very few of them. Vacheron Constantin make a great one, which I love. But uh, this, I mean, the, the, uh, the Orwork ones are way more than that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Whereas this is a workhorse movement with a module built on top of it. I think it was about, I want to say it was about 2,000 pounds. Two or 3,000, yeah. Something like that. Something like that. Very inexpensive for what you got. Yeah. Very inexpensive for what you got. Uh, some unique materials, a unique look. So it really ticks all the boxes in terms of the movement, observability, the unique design. And it just makes you look at it and you go, yeah, I just fancy one of them. It's really difficult to say any more about it than that. You just look at it and you go, yeah, price seems reasonable. Love the look of it. Like the idea of it. Let's have one of them. I then never wear it. One of the watches that came to mind that I like wearing a lot is um, the Azimuth Mr. Roboto 2. Right. No, I have to say, I'm not entirely familiar with it. <laughs> have you, you've never, you've, you said I've never worn that one? I've never heard of that one. I, I've heard of the brand. I've heard of the Azimuth. I can't picture in my head what it is so you're speaking of. Though. It's The case shape looks like a Richard Meal kind of, actually. It's like a tonneau. It's, very, it's actually quite large. And the crown looks like a wind-up key from an old toy. And the dial is designed to look like a sort of retro 50s robot face, but the, you know it's also telling the time and stuff like that. So Yes, I do know what one you mean. Yeah, uh, it's not the weirdest one. I definitely have weirder watches, for sure. But uh-huh. it's sort of one that comes to mind that explains some of the weird stuff that I like. And the idea that there seems to be some type of an android face on your watch... It's also inspired by 1950s robot toys, and it's just got all these sort of double meanings and, and meaning to watch nerds and things like that. Um, there's so much of watch guy culture in that one little story. I think it's very well represented of this. It's, 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 it's the real watch collector club. You know, anyone can out, go out there and be like, I really want a Daytona. Like, that's easy. But to get into watches to say, like, I want to spend $6,000 on a watch with a robot face in it that has, like, a movement that was just created (laughs) for this, like, that's nerd territory. Like, I respect that, and I love wearing that because of how original it is, and it doesn't look like anything else. What about you, Ricky? What's your most unusual? Probably the most unique movement I've got in any of my watches of that, well, I don't have anything over that sort of price point, would be my vintage bull of Accutron. Yes. Tuning fork movement, which isn't quartz, predates that. Does it work? Of course it works, yeah. keeps Good amazing time. It loses one minute a year. Wow, that's better than advertised. Yeah, yeah, it is. 1967. Who was it, you, who, who was it that appreciated that Basel or SIHH? It was last year I went to SIHH and the one of the managing director, vice president of Blancpont stopped me as I was walking past because he spotted it on my wrist and then proceeded <laughs> to explain to the person he was with that he used to work on these when he was an apprentice watchmaker back in the 70s. Oh, that's sweet, that's sweet. Yeah. That was a good story. Uh, we go. I guess you'll never meet again in SIHH or Basel. <laughs> Things are going, but there we go. You know, what I, you know what I just got show. to wear? Uh, I was actually uh-huh. visiting um, with with Bulova in New York, and they're in the Empire States Building, and it's, uh, it's a pretty cool office there. And they're doing some stuff with Accutron. Electrostatic? Yeah, I mean, but like we don't know when it's going to launch. But anyways, they had one of the, I think it was like 2010 or something like that. They had the, re- you remember that limited edition, re-edition of the Accutron? Yeah. It was like, it was expensive, it was like 5,000 bucks. It was a gorgeous, super cool. And I just like, I, I, it was so hard to take it off my wrist because I really want to <laughs> take that one home with me. Because so I, I know what you're saying. They had some of the original ones there. Do you, do you, do you find it a little small for today's tastes? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's good, and then the party piece is you can give it to someone and say, put it in your ear and listen. It's got a nice, It's the hum is nice. It's a nice the hum. The hum is nice. Very yeah. therapeutic. So, as we close out, what's next, Rick? Final one then, and obviously we're just going to spend 20 seconds talking about this, because this isn't a big topic at all in the luxury watch world. You is sure? value retention. <laughs> so, buying a watch with having a mindset of how much is this going to be worth if I ever want to sell it. Is this a strategy for watch collecting? Is it really just a fool's errand uh, at the end of the day? Well, it's a strategy for trying to make money from an extremely volatile asset when apparently you have nothing else to invest in. (laughs) Buy whiskey. Look, watch collecting is purchasing to own. Watch Mm -hmm. speculating is purchasing to sell. So you are not a watch collector if you're buying it with the notion of I'm going to sell it. If you sell it, that's fine. But if you're a watch collector, guess what you're doing with that money? You're buying another watch. Uh-huh. So if you're, if you're buying a watch to make money and then use that money for 
some non-watch related purpose, you are, in my opinion, not a watch collector. So value retention is something that is important because if you do sell it, you want to be able to buy another watch. And it's also important because, um, you know, these days there's so many watches out there that people really like to flip a lot and to sort of test things out. And in 2009, this was also true because you had the forums that were, you know, had been in full steam when it comes to trading and things like that. Today, you have it um, as well. I wouldn't say it's any bigger, but it's still it's still a thing. You have a lot of people because they're more thinking about value right now. They want to be able to sell it uh, to get something else. Um, I, I very firmly draw the line <clears throat> at selling for over retail. I do not think that it's a moral practice. I think that selling a watch for over the retail price, especially if it's like still being sold, is immoral. You can disagree with me all you want. I believe it's immoral. I think that you're taking advantage of people. And I think that the watch industry has been producing too many watches for so long that it is inconceivable that anyone would need to buy a watch at over retail when there are so many available out there at well under retail for now. And whether or not that's going to last forever is is unclear. But for now, and I challenge anyone to disagree with me, there's so many freaking good deals on watches out there. If you look and you're open-minded, you can get amazing quality for really good value. If you overspend on retail price to get some hot watch, I mean, it's a, just an ego play at that point. It's just an it's just an ego play, and people are going to start saying nasty things about you. I don't ever admit to anyone that you spent more than retail on the watch. Don't ever admit it. So when it comes to buying a watch, be cognizant of the fact that resale is a thing. Certain very, you know, at the time in 2009, you know, you could buy one of those expensive watches that like depreciated by 80% like overnight. These days, yeah. it's a little bit less because there's more of a global market for watches. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go nuts with this, but just remember that today in 2020, and I don't know how for how much longer, buying a used watch... Is a is a better value unless something new comes out that you really like and you feel it's a good it's it's a good value. So you just need to be aware of value retention, but don't don't hyper obsess about it. You should be buying a watch as though you are a polygamist and you get married to them as many times as you want. I would agree with that. <laughs> and what I have seen, just maybe in the last couple of years, again as a refresher, I've only been into this hobby three years, but and I've seen it change a lot. When I first got in. People were talking about buying a watch because they wanted it, they liked it, and they didn't want to lose their shirt, but they didn't really care. It's like if you buy an expensive pair of sneakers or a t-shirt or something else, a luxury item, you're buying it for the enjoyment factor. It's not for the fact that you're going to be able to sell it for what you paid for it or that it'll appreciate. Well, I'm seeing more people coming into the hobby and they're being blinkered into thinking, I need to make decisions on something here where I'm not going to lose as much money. It's not for enjoyment, it's about value retention. I think that's the wrong way to go about it it should be about enjoyment and love but guys let's be honest it's peer pressure you we come from the perspective of being highly confident individuals that got into watches for a love of watches if people are hearing all day long i just made this or this one's going up or is that that one popular piece they're gonna think that that's what watch collecting is about they're not gonna really know because people like us tend to be a little bit more humble and, and shy uh, when it comes to saying, you know, sensational stuff like, what's that crap watch you bought? Like, we would never say that online. But there's a lot of jerks out there that just think about value, reten value retention or trying to get like an investment watch. Essentially, they're buying future demand. So, yes, there's people yeah. out there who are assuming, oh, this is going to be a hot watch. I'll buy this now so I can sell it when it's a little bit hotter. That's all they're doing. That's literally all they're doing. And sometimes those are great watches. Half the time, there's nothing special like a lot of the watches that are like selling for over retail right now like or or that have gone high at auction or have been popular the last few years i haven't desired any of them very much i could easily pass without them it's like these are not that special timepieces it's just the way that popularity works in a viral world a viral yep. world and i don't mean like wow double meeting now careful, on, careful. On, yeah online the idea is that one thing gets hyper popular because that's what's shared to the exclusion of other things when in reality it's not just there's there aren't just five super popular videos. There's like a bazillion of them. It's just the things that get shared more easily online. So uh, yeah. it's, 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 it's hard for people just coming into it. There's a lot of misdirection happening. Good old. Well, let's leave it there for today. We will mm -hmm. save our discussion of full patina till another time because I suspect that'll last for about another two hours. Mm -hmm. 
but uh, I, I love Fopatina, by the way. I'm a big fan. Uh, yeah, you're a big Fopatina fan. That's it. That's that's you lost the flippers and the Fopatina haters. I call it Fotina. Fotina is the way you're supposed to call it. Fotina. Fotina. I want a brand. I want a brand called Fotina. I would be very happy to review a Fotina watch. Ariel, we were thinking about names for our little group a while back, and I came up with the name Luminati. Uh, Luminati. Um, I, I, here's the problem. It's great, but I think it's taken. I thought you were going to tell them about our strap brand. Jock straps. Straps for jocks. I understand. Very descriptive. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Anyway, right, yes. Uh, Ariel, tell everybody where they can find you this coming week. Yeah, so um, I'm Ariel Adams again. Thank you very much for having me, gentlemen. It was it was a pleasure doing an, another another show with the Scottish Watches podcast. Um, I'm the founder of a blog to watch, and you can find me, uh, my content at blogtowatch.com and our various social media channels. Um, and I love doing this stuff. So thank you so much. And you can find us at Scottish Watches and all things Scottish Watches on Instagram, etc. So who's saying goodbye? Because, you know, I've not done it yet. On you go, Rick. On you go. Okay, well, as they say, as we like to say in our podcast, I don't know how they say it on Spending Time, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from them. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Oh, no.